That's something I'm very into. That's how you and I met. I'm into growing myself, and I'm 62, and I'm still taking classes, and I just can't, I can't learn enough. And it all helps me be a better poker coach as well. Hello guys, community and family. My name is JJ Ruescas. I am the host of Optimizando Me or Optimizing Me in, in English, a show where we invite and have guests that are remarkable in their areas of expertise and from whom we learn from their stories, their tricks, their habits, and especially their mindset. Our guest today is a poker player and a poker coach with a long trajectory in this discipline. His expertise and stories not only come from the world of poker, but also from a list of different adventures around the world. The way that he makes decisions is something that I am personally interested in today and something that we will research about today as well. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Mark Brent. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Hey, JJ. How are you? Very fine. I'm super excited to have you here I'm today. I'm so honored to be interviewed by you. This is um, a real treat for me. All right. Likewise, mine. So let's go straight to the point. Who is Mark Bremont and what does it mean to be a poker player for you? Well, um, I'm going to say, long story short, I played a lot of cards in high school. Sort of wasn't a big part of my life. I got into business. I got into the hospitality industry. I ended up buying my first restaurant at age 33 and I was having trouble making ends meet. And coincidentally, they opened up a card room, you know, in Tucson. And that's when Indian gaming, the, on the reservations, uh, the casinos are all over the United States now, but that was the beginning 1996. Um, so because I was having trouble making ends meet, I, thought, okay, well, this is a godsend. I can always go down and make money at the card room and supplement my restaurant. And um, as usual, I had the wrong idea of things because when I walked into the card room, I, they were playing a game called Texas Hold'em, which I had never heard of. I grew up playing stud and different forms of poker. Let's just say <laughs> I was in way over my head. And... On that very first day I walked in the room, I hit a bad beat jackpot, which is, I'm talking to non-poker players, so I'm just going to describe it as it's a hand where a very unusual event occurs. One hand is beaten by another hand, like uh, I had aces full and the other guy had four jacks, and all of a sudden, I didn't know what was going on, but it was like everybody started yelling and high-fiving and grabbing each other and hugging. And I had lost the hand, but the bad beat, it's called a bad beat jackpot, went to me. So I got like $5,000 for this. And Wait, was that your first day? Wait a second. Yeah, my first day. In the, <laughs> within the first hour. Well, now you can you can be in this room and, and nobody hits a bad beat for a year and, and it's a progressive it keeps going up so that was relatively small sometimes the jackpot really grows and then the players stick around because uh, like i said it's an unusual event and card rooms have these bad beat jackpots they pull a dollar out of each pot so the the, the bad beat on the board gets progressively higher anyway 
um, I was completely amazed and I drove home, but I knew one thing that I didn't know really how to play this new game, Texas Hold'em. And, um, but I had tuition money. So, right. so sure. it, it, that very straight, what could have been me losing $200. Cause that's what I sat down with. It was a small game. Um, it, it turned into like a big event and um, it was kind of like uh, fate. Yeah, <laughs> it was fate. So a poker player was born and it wasn't really my aspiration to become a poker player. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I was into my restaurant. Right. Within a year, the restaurant became my hobby and poker <laughs> became my vocation. So... I know that that is the beginning of the of the poker story. Now, what about the poker coach? How do you become one of those ones? About five years in, since that was 1996, I'm going to say two th year the year 2000. Again, I think I know a lot more than I do. I'm basically winning in a game, pretty big game, but. It's the tech boom. The players I'm playing against are sort of gambling. I'm reading every book I can get my hands on. I'm playing to survive. And I'm thinking that I'm this great player, but I really wasn't. And, well, I was a good player, but I just wasn't as good as I thought I was. Um, we call those hometown heroes. Go to Vegas and the sharks will eat you up. But in the hometown, you're safe. So... Online poker became a huge thing. TV on poker became a huge thing. I found myself in the middle of a poker boom. The ratings on TV for poker were higher than baseball. And I started playing online. And that was also a fluke because I was at a friend's party. And he had to run and get ice. And he asked me to watch. And I didn't believe in poker online. I didn't trust it. And... He came back 20 minutes later from his ice run, and I had won a bunch of money. And I saw patterns inside the computer of the players I was playing against, which emulated what I saw at the poker table. And I found an opportunity to join an online poker site as a coach and also to recruit players to play on that site. And I started earning affiliate revenues. Hmm. And I was making... So I would get somebody into my house. I would coach them, sign them up online. And when they play, I would earn a little, I would earn pennies. But if you added it all up, you know, I'd wake up and the next morning I had a couple extra hundred, couple hundred bucks in my, in my account. You know, it was what, you know, it was making money while I was sleeping. So to me, that was a dream. Um, but soon I realized the players that were coming, that I was signing up, They would disappear because they would lose their money. So I said, shit, I got to teach these guys how to win. Because if they win, I win. And a coach was born. Hmm. <laughs> That's silly. So I am bringing people home. My kids are age two and three. And I've, I'm continually grabbing people out of the casino. It's sort of like a sales background. And um, for me, 
I've always enjoyed teaching. It just fit. And building winners was a thing. Now I had an idea. I wrote the community college a letter. I said they should have a poker class. Remember, poker is booming on TV. So they're not thinking, ooh, this is gambling. We can't have a poker class. And I'm not talking about for credit. I am talking about in the personal interest section. So next to poker is like cutting cucumbers and, you know, bowling and badminton and just things of interest, you know, hobbies for seniors and things. And they were very receptive to that. I went in to meet the head of the personal instruction, personal interest instruction. And halfway through the interview, I stopped him and his name was David Miner. And I said, David, am I interviewing you or are you interviewing me? What's going on here? He says, no, we want you to have the class. I said, well, let's get out of here. Let's go have lunch. Let's do three classes. Now, what am I thinking? I'm thinking I'm going to get more affiliate revenues that I'm already adding to. So I'm already doing very well. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to be great. What a great avenue. What a great place to, 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 to show my goods at the community college. Well, halfway through lunch, I stopped David again. I said, David, I thought I was volunteering. Are you telling me I'm getting paid for this? He said, of course you're getting paid. <laughs> I was, I fell out of my chair. I said, okay, forget about one class. We're going to have three classes. We're going to have a beginning, advanced, and tournament. And right there, I made up the syllabuses, you know, and I had them emailed to him in no time at all. And I met the most dear people through teaching at Pima Community College for five years, um, they weren't your typical card players. They were family people. They were engineers. They were, they came in, they were grandmothers. I had 96 year old to 16 years old. I mean, it was the most amazing thing. And another thing that struck me is poker players didn't come to my class. Huh. It was only people who were interested in poker because it was on TV. But of course, I was going to teach them to play poker and do it slowly. And I learned that engineers do what you tell them to do. And artists, they have to fall down on their knees and bloody their knees a little bit. And, and they learn that way. So there's definitely a left brain, right brain thing going wow. on with my poker students. Wow. But I, they became like a family to me. And uh, from that, I started a poker think tank. We would meet at Brugger's for coffee every Wednesday. And uh, we would go around the table and we have accountability and we were leveling up and my affiliate revenues are growing and I'm becoming less and less interested in playing poker because it's a grind, but I love coaching poker. It's my thing. But I was still a player then. It wasn't until, I don't know, maybe 2011 where I sort of hung up my stirrups. But I still play. I just don't play nearly as much as I used to. I played a lot of cards for about 15 years. This one gives me so many questions right now. Are we still good? Can you hear me? Are we good? Yes, I can hear you. Cool. Nice. Now, let's start warming up the poker conversation because clearly i am a newbie i don't even know what are the plays 
and this the distance between what I know and what you know is huge. But one of the questions that I have for you, Mark, is what are the mistakes that you see in people beginner like me when we're starting our career in poker? That's interesting. I have never had a student that just came to me green. And when I was a restaurant manager, I used to look for waitresses who didn't have experience because I wanted to train them my way. So I've always, for me, having somebody who the, the whiteboard is completely clean, they have no bad habits, and I could teach them from the beginning, someone who doesn't even know that a flush beats a straight. Uh, you know, uh, you know anything about the game. That would be that would be amazing. On the other hand, the players that come to me usually have a pretty good knowledge. Like right here, right next to me. You know, uh, these are three books that I'm working on, uh, all written by the same author. And I have a new student who happens to be a professor in Connecticut. Uh, he he teaches sports marketing, um, and he just signed up for me this week. But he's read these books, and we're going over them. And, and he, he wants to transition from, uh, I'm try, trying to confuse you, but there's two kinds of poker, cash game poker and tournament poker. It's two different animals. Uh, think of it as baseball and softball. Mm. Yeah. So um, he wants to transition, and it's going to be a great, I, I can tell he's going to be a great student after all. He's a coach. He's a teacher. He used to coach mm. basketball, you know, so. Yeah, it's going to be a great student. But your question is... What are the mistakes that beginners normally perform? I think of it as this way. Poker players have leaks in their game. So in the center, like the sun and the universe, is position. And position is acting last. That's what that means in poker. And everything that you do in poker revolves around your position at the table. Because when you can see what your opponents do first, it gives you a tremendous edge not only to win money when you act last, it gives you permission to fold, which is the most profitable decision a player can make, just simply folding. It doesn't cost anything. So the most common leak is playing a hand where you start the hand in a disadvantage. And I call that coming to a sword fight with a knife. So let me see if I can make it really clear for someone who knows nothing. Someone in front of you has raised. He's a pretty tight player. And you look down and you see a pretty good hand. It's an ace-10. And you decide to play because you have a pretty good hand. Well, it's a big mistake to play that ace-10 because he has an ace-king. So you're starting the hand with negative equity. You might win the hand, but over the long run, it's a losing decision. In poker, the same hand will never repeat itself twice. There's too many variables in your life, but the same situations will occur again and again and again. So if you're that player who is playing, I call them trap hands, and we can eliminate that leak, well, now instead of losing $5 an hour, you're losing $2 an hour. Now we have to find the next leak. 
then mm. the next one. The next thing you know is minus $5 becomes plus $5 an hour. And let's say you're a hobby player and you're playing 20 hours a week and you're making 400 bucks a month. I coach the game not to pros. My number two cornerstone is don't quit your day job. Mm. I don't look for my poker players. I, I want my poker players to be playing as a hobby. My number one corner, cornerstone, if you don't mind, may I say it? Please, please, go ahead. Lifetime hobby of fun and profit. Think of a mechanic who works at work, who has a car in the backyard, and he tinkers with it until it's ready to sell on the market, and he makes 500 or 1,000 bucks. You know, one of my students just wrote me an email yesterday. She tallied up, and she's over 80 years old. She tallied up, and she keeps accurate records, which most poker players don't. Um, and that's a problem. But the she tallied it up, and she won $500 on the year. She's had better years, but she was actually losing in December, and she pulled it out. In the last three or four days, she pulled it out and it became positive. So it was great. So now you mentioned this specific word, which I referred to in the beginning, which is the decision-making process, right? Now, not only in your poker coach career, but also in your poker player career, can you let me know or can you describe situations or how you're, let's put it this way, can you describe how your thought process works when you have to make those top decisions? How do you operate in the decision-making process? I once wrote a column. I wrote for Antioch Magazine for more than five mm -hmm. years. And they folded during the pandemic, unfortunately, and that's where I get my uh, students from. Uh, a new magazine has hired me, but they're having a little trouble getting off the ground. And that the name of that magazine is uh, www.stackedpoker.net um, and uh, the, the second edition is coming out online but it really it really when it's a real magazine and it's going in the card room that's when I you know I, I don't pull in many players from online there's so much out there that's why but so the question is how do you decide give me the question oh oh the decision-making process is right. uh -huh. is the player named JJ. He's 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 a sailor. I call him the drunken sailor, and he's having fun. He's splashing around money. He's raising. Now he's got a very wide range, and I'm sitting there. I'm the shark, and I'm waiting for him. So I isolate him with a re-raise. And now it's just him and me. And I just use my poker skills to extract his money. Um, and uh, the, the point is, the very same situation, and I have the very same two cards, the guy named, I call him Old Man Coffee or Uncle Broomcorn. Take your pick. Uncle Uncle Broomcorn. Uncle Broomcorn. They say about Uncle Broomcorn, he's so tight, he anteed himself to death, meaning he, he never plays a hand. Uncle Broomcorn, all of a sudden, he wakes up and he raises. 
and I take this hand and I throw it away. The same hand that I re-raised my friend, the drunken sailor. So this is a game where you're playing different situations against different people. So there's a lot of that. That's very difficult to teach. Mm. However, um, it's teachable. It's teachable. How did I do? Did that answer your question? It, I'm, I'm going to go back to this question. I know that I'm going to go back because... And then I'm going to add to that then. Sure. Bluffing is a very important part of the game. And if you mm. bluff too much, people will start to look you up and you'll be losing. Bluffing means you don't have a hand, but you push your money in and you watch them fold as you take the money. Well, if you do that too much, people start to wake up and they start to think, oh, this guy's, you know, and they call you and then you say, I got nothing and they take your money. Mm. So your timing is very important. And that's also part of your profit margin. So imagine a circle and where your profit is coming from. One of the, one of the slivers is the hands that you select to play. But the problem with that is it's, if you had 10 things, 10 things in the pie, it's the least important of the 10. Mm. For example, position is much more important. The problem with players is they always look at their cards and it's how our brains are hardwired. We've got good cards. We think we deserve the pot and we, and we act accordingly. And I'm thinking about the situation, not the cards. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is kind of crazy for me to advertise because I'll lose business. I play hands in the dark sometimes. I feign that I look at my cards, don't even look at them. And then I come in with a raise and the way, uh, the way it happens is I, I end up winning the pot. Because quite often, both players don't have anything. Hmm. The guy with the biggest bet wins. So, you know, how often do I do that? Once in a while. I find it opens a door in my brain called the imagination door. Hmm. And so, in other words, I'm playing jazz. <laughs> and these other guys are playing, you know, just like maybe... The Beatles, mm -hmm. you know, I want to hold your hand, just a basic, <laughs> oh, sorry, right. but you know, just a basic, dun, 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 you know, right. You know, like, so you, you know. mean, and correct, let me, because you, you put it in beautiful, in a beautiful analogy that is the jazz analogy. I was thinking in my, in my mind, something that actually by that expression was properly said. What I was thinking is some people are mechanized in their way of, of, of playing but you are adaptable to the situation and you're riffing and you're improvising at some point is that is that what i mean is that what you mean absolutely and okay there's only one player in the world who i really hate with all my heart and his name is pluribus and he was developed at carnegie mellon um. and he's an ai bot and let's call Pluribus a she. And she 
Never learned about ace-king is better than ace-queen, pocket threes is better than pocket deuces. They did not program her. They just simply had her watch a million hands play against herself. So she took five pros and just crushed them. Like LeBron James playing against five people in college, you know? I mean, she beat them at such a high rate that it almost makes a grown man want to weep hmm. because it just proves to me what I'm telling you that we're, we're, we're like in the evolutionary scale, we're still chickens and hmm. pluribus is so far ahead of us. And it's my dream to, to outplay an AI bot. And I used hmm. to teach in my class in 2010 at Pima Community College, I used to say, hey, a bot can win in chess. That's all math. That's all logic. But a bot can never beat a real poker player. And boy, was I wrong. I had an, <laughs> en I had an engineer, and he's a manager of one of these big telescopes. Uh, and he told me after class, he said, uh, not for long, Mark. It's coming. And um, I... I didn't refute it, but I thought, okay, I'll, when I see it, I'll believe it. But Pluribus has completely turned this game, in my mind, upside down. So the first thing you learn when you're learning poker is the hands, the hand strengths. It doesn't matter where you go to, but in the Mark Bremen School of Poker, there's a list of 10 things, and it's number 10. So... Mm -hmm. I think I want to pat myself on the back because before I knew the name Pluribus, I was doing it that way. Mm. And I do play out of the box when I play. And I know you're going to ask me about my biggest win. So, um, and, and audience, please forgive me because JJ didn't say anything to me about that. <laughs> Mark, tell me about your biggest audience. Mark, tell me about your biggest audience. <laughs> I'm not a tournament player, but in 2005, I found myself in Vegas with a few friends and my kids and my wife and my family. And I joined this tournament for $1,500. And the uh, tournament, it was uh, May 13th, 2005. And the name was Showdown at the Mirage. And um, it's a great story, but I came in second place and I won about $100,000. And that was life-changing for me. What made it life-changing? The money, paying off the house, things like that, you know? Ah, Just, okay, okay, you, know, the, you know, that was a good chunk of change for a guy who was wow. struggling with two, two little kids, you know? Uh -huh. And um, it also, you know, helped my ego. I felt pretty good about myself. But the, that whole story about that tournament is interesting, too. But the... And the depression of coming in second and not first is also interesting because first place paid $160,000. And I really thought that had my name on it. Um, but we could spend the whole interview talking about this particular tournament. Can uh, you give us some, some insight of what happened in this one? Uh, I know that we can summarize the story, but let's yes, see what I'll happened. give you some zen. I'll give you some really good shit. Okay? Sure. In a tournament, when it comes down to the last part of the tournament 
before you're in the money. We call that the bubble. So they paid 27 players. And from, from 28th through 35th, let's call that the bubble. Everybody's playing really tight because nobody wants to get knocked out on the bubble. That means you got to fly home to New York. That means you got to fly back to Nebraska. You got to fly back down to Arizona or Texas and tell your wife and your friends you didn't make it. Now, 21st through 27th paid $2,800. That shows you that's a $1,300 profit. First place paid $160,000. And back then, it wasn't on an electronic board like it is today. Hmm. I was looking at this whiteboard, like handwritten. And it hmm. said 21st through 27th, $2,800. And I was sort of short on chips. And I was trying, like everybody else, to what we call limping into the money. And then you can, then it changes once, once you're down to 27 and everybody's made the money, everybody's happy, everybody's smiling on the bubble. You can cut the tension with a knife. You know, everybody's armpits are a little bit sticky, you know, uh -huh. uh, everybody's hands are a little clammy. You've got everybody, you know, it's nerves. It's nervous. Everybody's nervous. Everybody wants uh -huh. to make more money. Something hit me like a thunderbolt, and it's only because the board was in front of me and I could see it. I decided I do not give a rat's ass, excuse my French, whether I make 2800 or not. That wasn't important to me. So I looked down at my cards. I didn't look at my cards. I just pretended, hmm. and I pushed all in. Everybody folded. I did this seven times in a row. And by the seventh time, two people got knocked out. We were down to 29 players. Now we're down to 27. And we were all led to the buffet. And I had a big stack now. Because I didn't get called once. Hmm. But I lost my attachment to the idea of $2,800. Hmm. And... That was an amazing epiphany. I don't know where it came from. It was just a beautiful thing. And there was another lesson that happened at the buffet because we were going to start in 90 more minutes and we're going to play down to nine players and then come back the next day. An amazing thing happened is I noticed everybody was eating because the buffet with king crab legs and shrimp and sushi and just... Anything you could imagine. Uh, there's food for a king. And I saw people eating. And I said, not me. I'm going to have a bowl of miso soup, a little seaweed salad, and a couple pieces of sushi. I got out of there. I went right back to my room. Stay where you play. I had time for a 20-minute nap, a hot, hot, hot shower. Um, I, I came back fresh as a daisy. My, my, my competitors were all like, you know, they were all filled up. <laughs> and um, I really think that made a difference. Um, but anyway, by three in the morning, we were down to nine players. 
And then I had to come back the next day at noon. And uh, like I told you, I came in second. Now, let me, let me dive deeper, not only in this situation, but let's use this situation to try to exemplify how is your emotional management in that in those situations how do you manage your emotions because like you said so many people were completely anxious nervous and uh, they don't want to get disappointed they don't want, they want to win but they don't want to get out of the bubble and so there are so many emotions how do you manage your own emotions when you are especially under pressure like that it's all about the zen and back then i didn't even know there was three letters called z-e-n but <laughs> i was I, w I had uh, I had very light snacks in the room, like, you know, nuts and berries. And I, um, I definitely took melatonin to go to sleep that night. I slept like a baby. I don't think anybody else had a good night's sleep. Um, or, you know, or, you know, the pros sleep like babies and the people have never been there before. You know, it's very restless. You know, the next day is really hard to get back in there at noon. Um, I'm also in the gym aerobicizing. And again, that's more important than the two cards you're looking at. Now, how many players do you think woke up that morning and went to the gym? I would guess only one because you go down to that gym in that casino, there's not too many people down there, but um, it's like, you're, you're actually, you know, when you have a newborn, I, I have children and stuff, you know, but you really take care of your kid so you're coddling your brain, you're aerobicizing it. So your brain is like a cell phone and you got to keep your batteries charged. Part of keeping your batteries charged is aerobicizing and having good food. So that is how, basically in other words, is keeping you cool by taking care of yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, then emotional management goes through the window. As soon as I saw that I was going to make it, mm -hmm. I called my wife over. I said, get another room. And of course, you know, the wives being who they are, they're like, you know, that's another $150. I said, you look, look at that board, you know, get another room. I'm going to go up and sleep by myself, you know. You know, there, you know, you, and, and it just these little, little intent. If I had a name for myself, I would call myself the Intangibles Coach. By the way, how many people are going to watch this video? Thousands, million probably. <laughs> Hopefully. So now let me ask this question that is, it's tricky. How do you teach your, your students to make a difference between this thin line that is playing poker as a hobby and then addiction? Because it seems that there is a thin, very thin line there. Wow, great question. Poker players recognize that this is a game of skill. It's a 100% skill game. You go into a typical card room, if there's 100 players playing, only 10 of them made money that year, and only five of them made enough money to go out for a great dinner once a week. And... Um, you know, so they won, I wouldn't even call it significant. So, so the people that are losing are gambling. And it's very expensive to play poker. The house takes a rake. 
you have to really be on your toes. Again, I'm teaching intangibles. You have to keep your eye on the ball and keep on your toes. What's going on at the poker table is we're continually going on tilt. Tilt is a poker word. Tilt to a lot of poker players means anger. It's not anger. It's simply playing less than your best. So if you're at bat in baseball and you hit a line drive, crack, but somebody catches it and you're out, well, of course you're upset. But your hitting coach says, great at bat. Nice hit. Kept your eye on the ball. You got good wood. That's the breaks. Sometimes in poker, you, you play it perfect and you lose. The point is, what do you do after, when you lose a hand like that? The human brain is hardwired for war. You stole my chickens. And it gets muddled. If you could take a picture of it on an MRI, after that line drive happened and the person caught it, your brain gets brown and, you know, maybe the batter comes up the next time and he strikes out. Maybe it's the hitting coach's job to make that batter reset. How's that? Breathing. Okay. Now, I'm not a breathing expert. I wish I knew more. But I do know enough to do things like when I get to a red light, see if I can focus on my breathing for a minute. Because usually you forget by the time it's 30 seconds. That is your where you're going to help me, JJ. You're going to help me be a better breathing slash poker coach because all my students understand that I want them to take a break. I want them to limit their, their, their session to three hours and I want them to focus on their breathing on the way in. I want them to be like a lean, mean fighting machine. I coach my students like I'm a mother hen. I really pay attention again to the intangibles. So if you're paying attention to the intangibles and you're breathing and you're off tilt and you understand everything around you, you're less likely to go on tilt. A poker table, everybody's just taking turns going on tilt. If you have nine equal players, and a famous poker author said this before, I, I read this from him, his name is Mike Carroll, before I, you know, I talked about it. He said it's called Caro's least law of least tilt. If you have nine equal players, the person who has the least amount of tilt is the one who wins the most money. So we're not, it's not so much how you play your cards, it's how you manage your brain. I make my students painfully aware of the fact that they are gambling and don't kid yourself. And it's, it takes, it's a real aha moment. So imagine a player at a craps table. He's rolling the dice and he's having fun. His amygdala in his brain, which is supposed to be the size of like a, the tip of a needle is about the size of an almond. Okay. Well, that same thing's happening to a poker player. We are gambling. Our bodies are going through an emotional roller coaster ride. It's a dangerous hobby. So I don't want to be too much about myself, but I really approach the game different than any other coach I know. I'm sure there are. Um, and I'm sure it comes up with every coach. But for me, it's like the priority. It's the, it's the big priority is how we're taking care of our brain. How many hours are we playing? 
And sometimes students get upset with that. They want to talk about tactics. They want to say, well, what if I have an ace-10 and I'm in the hijack seat? And, uh, you know, there's all these different poker jargon, and I know you're not following that, but somebody that knows the game will know what I mean. You're in the hijack, the cutoff, the button. You know, what, was, what should I do? And I'm saying, well, it doesn't really matter. I want to know what, you know what's your frame of mind. Are you up or down? Who made the raise in front of you? You know, um, you know how long have you been at the table? And uh, it's okay that it, I'm not saying tactics don't matter. They're very important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in baseball, you lay down a bunt, but you have to stay on your toes and keep your eye on the ball. They tell you that in third grade and they tell you that in the major leagues. By the way, do you understand baseball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know, you, know, I know no. you don't understand poker, but you know, I'm using analogies that you that you understand. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah. If I wouldn't, I know that you will find some analogies from soccer to make me understand that. Sure. We're good. Sure. <laughs> We're good. I got it. So question. Now, what about this? What skills from poker can be transferable or are used outside of the table in your day-to-day -day life? Nada. Zero. <laughs> I see books now about in TED Talks from poker players who are justifying their existentialism if I'm using the right word. It's a pet peeve of mine. That's why I was so quick to say nada. It really pisses me off. Like as if poker players have better marriages or get less speeding tickets or have less drug problems, or forget about that. You know, the, 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 the po poker is a game. And if you're going to tell me that stockbrokers or, or day traders, you know, or, you know, like, it's high stress. So I think poker players have a high rate for divorce. I don't know what the number is. They say police officers have a high rate for divorce. Of course, that's a stressful job, right? But if you're a poker player and you really think you want to go pro and you want to make a living at this, well, you better have your whole family support. Hmm. But it's really a bad idea. It's really not doable. You have to have a bankroll. You have to be able to take the swings. There's lonely nights in the hotels. There's, you get ripped off. I mean, you, you know, there's scams. There's, oh, it's just, what can be transferred? Balance. If you approach your life with moderation and balance. I can think of three students I have right now, and um, they all have an incredible amount of balance in their life as far as being parents, grandparents, teachers, a budget for poker, uh, the 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 um, the common sense to hire a coach, um, yeah. It, it, these three people are not your typical card players. One day I was playing poker when I used to play for money. That was my thing, and I just happened to be at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. And at this particular table, I could feel the intelligence. And I just pointed to this heavy guy with a beard. He looked academic. And he was a physicist. And he was here for some, some you know, it was only 200 people in the world. They'd come into Vegas for a whatever. And, and, and so here's a guy with an IQ of like, you know, off the charts. Mm -hmm. And I knew he was not a good card player. But wow, he was smart. 
And then I sort of went around the table, not one by one. I don't. I was clever. I knew how to do. I had fun with it. People started talking. I, every single person at this table was a genius in what they did, and they all were like easy money to me. It was like I'm the shark, and they were guppies. But we all laughed, and I said, "Okay, I'll tell you guys what." Because they started talking about me being, you know, I had a lot of chips in front of me. I'm having a good time. I'm feeling the manic, you know, I'm just, I know where everybody is. And I said, I'll tell you guys what, I will trade you my bank account for any one of yours. So if that, that should tell you something, you know, now there are famous poker celebrities who have made tens of millions of dollars. There's no doubt about it. And there's some very successful coaches who I just revere. Uh, who have done huge online programs and have thousands of students. And uh, I'm jealous of them because, you know, I, I just, I fell behind um, that kind of online. I was the guy who brought one person into his house and taught them to play one by one. I didn't see the, the, the internet future and how to really build something. And I'm still stuck in my small brain because that's all I really want to do. I want to build my poker school where I have a poker calendar and I have little classes that I attend, little think tanks, discussions like you and I are doing, and, you know, six or eight people and, ca and lock it. But I want to be there. And then they pay X amount of dollars a month and they can come in if they don't get there signed up then they got to find another time because I don't want a big group. I want to be able to really hone in as a think tank. <laughs> and I love to brag a little that I did this at Wednesday at Brugger's Coffee. Oh, for almost five years, I had eight people and we met every Wednesday. We went around the room. Hell, it was like a 12-step meeting, you know. Uh, the person would get up and they'd look at their numbers and they'd say, Hi, my name is JJ. I am a lucky player. A powerful winning force surrounds me. And we would say, okay, JJ, what did you do? He goes, I played nine sit and goes, and I moneyed in 40%, and I made, and this guy's this guy's playing five cent, 10 cent. I made $14. And then I played 400 hands of cash, and I made $37. You know, this is my idea of a poker student. You know, and he's not, um, this guy I'm thinking of, for example, his name is Ted. Uh, he, he's not alive anymore, but he's, he's a kind of guy who comes to me through the community college and joins the think tank. And it's a hobby. And these are, this is my, this is my thing. I'm the hobby coach. Mm, nice. Now, Mark, here I have another one that it's very interesting. You, you mentioned how some of your or your students are playing for pennies, but they're doing it as a hobby. And you have seen also playing in tournaments, uh, this like, like the story that you were telling about the prize that was $100,000 more than that. So how is, how is your relationship with money? How do you relate? If I say money is a person, what kind of person is money for you? Well, let me clarify one thing. My The latest student who's making the transition from cash to tournaments, and we just picked up uh, this book. You can see I've you know read it a thousand times. Um, it's a 50-problem workbook, 
and we're going to go through every fifth, all 50 problems, he is planning to join the $10,000 buy-in main event. That's why he hired me. So I got poke, I got Penny and I got, you know, I got the whole range. But if I understood you correctly, your question is, how, tell me your question again, please. Sure. And this is tricky because even myself, I'm trying to clarify this question for me. For example, let me give you this, this, this example. For some people, money, and I see this a lot in South America. For some people, money is an evil need or something that is evil, but it's needed. For some of them, it is, it is their goal in life and everything in between. How do you consider your relationship with money? Me personally? Yeah. Wow, I think this is going to have to be a whole other interview for that <laughs> I I love my money as much as the next guy. I, um, I, I made some trades today in the stock market. You know, I, I bought Disney. <laughs> They're beat down. I think it's a good buy. But, but the point is, um, I'm not a day trader. This is a five-year hold in my mind. So, um, and I don't want you to give you the wrong idea. It's like just a couple thousand dollars, my buy. You know, it's just, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, but poker, I fell into it. I, I it, like a, it wrapped me in her cocoon. And I think if you took my best friends from ninth grade and we still all talk, it's a New York thing. In fact, somebody's birthday today. And I asked them a survey today. How many of you use a tongue scraper in the morning? And I was shocked that I'm the only one. But after I brush, you know, I always scrape. It's big, it makes a big difference. But none of these guys, they're all, all the same age. We're all 62. Maybe he's 63 today. So, so we're still friends and we kid each other. And they're all really, I say, wealthy is the wrong word. I think wealthy is more money than rich, right? Yeah, yeah, let's put it that way. Uh -huh. Okay, so they're not wealthy, wealthy, but yeah. but they're, you know, all of their net worths are make mine look really small. No, no, my point, my my, my point is with this, and, and now I understand why I made this so confusing. So, for example, for some people, investing a couple hundred, not even a couple thousand dollars, a couple hundred in stock market, let's say, would be a factor that they consider risky. Whoa, if they would put the same money in a, in, a, um, in a play of poker, that is even way over their league. That is too risky, right? Mm -hmm. So it is this perception that we have around money that for some people it is a scarce resource, for other people it is an abundant resource. And uh, I'm fascinating to see how you, in your case of poker player and poker coach, manage your relationship. So I know that that the the, the question is 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 tricky, but how do you? Okay, you lose money. You you lose money, and how do you feel with that compared to how do you feel when you win? It doesn't matter the, the amount of money. At the poker table. Yeah, let's put it at the poker table. Well, let's start with the fact that I coach my players to have a stop loss huh. in mind before they sit down at the table. And it could be the first hand that they play. And the, 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 the casino in the card room is there another day. Mm -hmm. What 
they don't understand is in general, people make excuses and cheat with that. But some stop loss is very important because you have to recognize that once you lose your threshold, we decide what their threshold is and everybody's is different. I happen to have a very high threshold. Like if I, you know, if, you know, if I'm stuck 2,500 bucks, I'm not really that, that, but some people and they're multimillionaires, they're stuck $250 and they've hit their threshold where they're starting to affect their decisions. I just say there's another day. So the money has a threshold. Everybody's is different, but my threshold only grew with poker knowledge and reading a lot of poker books and understanding what tilt is and understanding um, that. And, and uh, for myself, it's been different along the years. You know, when I first started, I couldn't take a loss. So I would stay and play from Tuesday till Friday, if that's what it took to, to get ahead. Now that's sick. That's crazy. I mean, no sleep for four days, you know, but it's very common in the poker world. It really is. It's, it, you know, it, it's like you're manic, but um, people were hardwired to go out on the hunt. I think this is what you know what you want to hear and bring home the catch and celebrate. Hmm. This is who we are. And you got to bring that, that um, the elk or the lion or whatever you're hunting back to the cave and be the hero. And that's who we are. That's why we can't get along in this world. It, it don't, you know, I was just thinking about how many just ridiculous wars we've been in. It just seems like we keep going back to it. it. Doesn't seem like we learn anything from the last one. So I think there's a real, I think it comes down to how humans feel about their land, about their money, about how we're hardwired. It all comes back to you stole my chickens. And I think, if we could learn from poker to have better strategy in politics, there could be something there. And the military has studied that. They have studied loss aversion and they've studied breathing. And I think these are all related in poker. But like I said, I really it might be my pet peeve. You really hit it on the spot, JJ. Uh, the fact that poker players uh, are making the case on TED Talks and books about, about the logic. And even our hero, we have a, we have a hero. His name is Seth Godin, yeah. Seth Godin. And, 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 and he, I was told, I didn't hear him, that said that you should teach first graders math by letting them play poker. And I was like, no, Seth. It's the only thing I heard him say that's been wrong. And I listened to his <laughs> podcast today. It was brilliant. He was talking about the Beatles and how they were practicing. It was wonderful because I was watching that last night. I couldn't believe it when he was talking about it this morning. But um, and I'm taking his marketing class, by the way. That starts on January 24th. I'm very excited about that. That's something I'm very into. With, that's how you and I met. I'm into growing myself and I'm 62 and I'm still taking classes. And I just can't, I can't learn enough. And it all helps me be a better poker coach as well. That is I think I did a shitty job answering your question, but I sure talked. But that one was, that last part was admirable. So we're good with that. <laughs> we're very good. 
I have a few last questions for you. Is that okay? We have time. Sure. Cool. Sure. Nice. I wanted to ask, what is something that you have unlearned, that you have unlearned over the last few years that improved whether the quality of your poker or even the quality of your entire life? What's something that you said, okay, no more. I, I will unlearn this thing. It's a continuous battle, JJ. Your ego is not your amigo. I have met so many new dear friends just in the last year through the three akimbo classes I've taken. Writing, creative, and story skills. Um, and this isn't an advertisement for akimbo. It's not for everyone. But um, the, the human spirit of community is rewarding. The most important thing for me in my life are my children. Every, it, it, everything goes, in my mind, through them. And that's normal. That's not, that's typical, I think. Which also, I guess, is part of the way that you make decisions, even when playing. Or... Yeah. Um, before my kids came along, I, I was a late, late bloomer when it came to marriage and children. But, you know... Uh, all the fun stuff like drinking and playing cards and smoking cigarettes and all that stuff were, in fact, caffeine and nicotine were my, you know, were my, at the beginning of my poker was what they hit my spot. Everybody's different. Yeah. Poker can be a really bad habit. I, I, I approach the game. I approach, I approach the game with danger, danger, danger. And immediately when a student reaches out to me, a new student, I ask, I have a, thing like what we're doing we talk and I always have a free consultation and uh, you know I'll go 15 minutes I'll go an hour and a half I'm always happy to meet someone new and um, the the point is is that uh, who's control you know are are you controlling the party or is the party controlling you just the most important thing and I think that's true in all aspects okay Mark so uh, last two questions that I have for you are where can we find you on the internet? Maybe what's your email address, or if you're still, you, you told me about the new magazine that is about to come in the upcoming months. Well, online you can find me at. Uh, well, let me just give you my 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 email and my phone number. Perfect. Nothing. You know, like yeah. my my I ha, I can't say I have a favorite student, but you know, one of my students recently came to me. He's been with me about a year now. Let's call him Joe. He came to me through something he read online that came from like 10 years ago. I don't even know how he found me, but I was really surprised. It was something I did. I, I don't know how it was came up or if somebody gave it. Yeah, I have to. But um, uh, I need to do my, I need to make myself more visible. And I don't yeah. have sight. And it's a real shame. I'm, I'm an embarrassment to 2022 <laughs> as far as where I am. But uh, hopefully this will be a, a year where that I, I, I up my level. I want to right. level up and get into the, into the real world. Okay. Um, uh, you know, but so, so my email is my last name, my first name at gmail.com. No dots, Brent. no dashes. So Bremont Mark at gmail.com. And my phone number is. I don't see a chat to type it in, but is no area code. And I'm, I live in Tucson, Arizona. 
Okay. And once we get past this pandemic, you know, I have been known to fly, meet with people too, do individual consultations for a weekend. But my, um, my phone number is 206-474-9267. Nothing thrills okay. me more than to get a text or an email or from a new person. I just, I love building my family. Nice. And the email and the phone number are going to be part of the notes of this episode. So no worry about that. All right. I love it. I have one last question for you. I have only one last question. I just want to add one thing. Part of the creative class in Akimbo, uh, it was a recent prompt, prompt number 37, I think. And it said, who are your 10 true fans? You know, and that's really what I'm looking for. I described like I have three or four. I want 10 true fans and I want to meet with them once a week. I want to have a poker think tank like we used to have at Brugger's. Uh, that to me is a dream and that's where I build from. Mm-hmm. And the prompt said you want 100 fans and then that's that's all you need. You know, Seth's written 17 bestsellers and less than 1% of the world has read his books. Probably like 0.0001. And uh, you don't need a lot of people to to make your to make your your thing, your hat where you want to get to so anyway yes not last question sorry nice no worries thank you for that if you could leave the audience with a question to improve their poker skills what would that question be do you have a coach poker is a game of skill just happens to be measured in dollars imagine a soccer team of some great players but they had a team vote and they voted that the captain named JJ is going to be our coach. While you play center, you're the coach. Team's going to fall apart. It's an essential ingredient in a successful team. Because, man, 11 different men and 11 different egos, one guy is okay with getting his ass kicked. You know, you throw the clipboard down, you say, run faster. And another guy, if you do that too, my God. He's going to want to trade. He, he's not going to show up the next day mentally. It's, it's, you know, so you, from, from that standpoint, I think I've never coached the same two players twice. The same way. The same two coaches. <laughs> I mean, I start off with fundamentals. You got to keep your eye on the ball. You got to stay on your toes. But every poker student that I get, um, after the first couple lessons, it all goes to different areas. So I think of myself as like a poker doctor, hmm. uh, you know, cut down your hours from uh, from five sessions a week to three sessions a week. You were playing six hours, cut it down to three. Can you do this for two months? They all say yes. They all don't do it, but we work on it. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, a perennial losing player is actually starting to break even and it's starting to feel good. It's like a great sandwich. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. And just to end this episode, guys, if you enjoy this conversation with Mark Remont, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to receive notifications for upcoming interviews like this. That's all for today. So keep learning and see you soon. I only have one question for you, JJ. Sure. What's it? Can we do this again tomorrow? I had a great time. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll have to book this one as well. I'm happy to hear that, Mark. See you guys. All right. Thank you very much. Bye.